0: I don't want to be the girl who laughs the loudest Or the girl who never wants to be alone is sober in the city real life real addiction real recovery call in now from all over the usa 1-800-SOBER-05 welcome back here's your on-air sponsor debbie strand
1: I'm Debbie Strand with Sober in the City here to tell you about how I got sober and how I'm maintaining my sobriety one day at a time. We're also talking about life issues. We all have them. If you're in recovery, you want to be, maybe you should be. And maybe you just found out that your seemingly sober boyfriend has been using the whole time that you've known him. We all have life issues. We still deal with this life one day at a time. Call us 800-SOBER-05. Tell me what's going on with you. Tell me if you're staying sober. Maybe you didn't stay sober through the weekend. Call me 800-SOBER-05 and visit us at soberinthecity.com and listen live on the Sober in the City app for Apple Android devices. And if you or someone you know needs to get into detox, rehab, needs an intervention, call me 800-SOBER-05. I am here to help. This show is going to be about how did you know you needed help? How did you get it? How hard was the transition? And how much better is it now? So let's start with how did you need help? I know for me, it was just another day. My bottom was nothing terrific. (laughs) It was like any other day. I was being processed through jail again, and one of the sheriffs took off my handcuffs, sat me down, pulled out a brown bag lunch, and shared an egg salad sandwich with me. And he looked at me and he said, "Deborah, what are you doing? And I answered, I don't know. I just don't know. And it was right there that something changed. And only around others in the rooms of recovery does that seem like a normal day and a story where people are sitting there shaking their heads, agreeing. Now, you normal people out there, the people who haven't been through what we have been through, that may seem a little irregular to you. And I get it now with being sober since 2004. I understand that that is not a normal day, but at the time it was and it was actually no big deal. I had decided at that point I was going to ask my brother if I could stay with him and his family and try to get sober. And I wasn't even sure what that looked like but my family at the same time was making that decision that they were going to ask me to come there and do that so it all worked out i knew i needed help the people around me were dying people were being murdered i had no steady place to stay i was separated from my dogs from my family i had no real friends even when i was around people i felt alone i was so lonely devastatingly lonely down to my core i was way too thin i was certainly sick And I was tired, not just I was sleepy, tired. I was worn out. I had no more fight left in me. I was bored with what was going around. I felt like I had beat the game. I understood the game. I mastered it. So there was nothing left to do. There was nothing interesting left to it. I had no hustle left in me and I didn't have enough strength to protect myself being out there. I was done. I was out of gas. So I want to go to some of our callers and see what they experienced and maybe you can relate to it and you're starting to feel the same way and you can go, you know what, maybe I'm done. Maybe I should listen to the next segment and figure out what do I do to get help? How do I reach out? What is that going to look like? We're going to go to Hans. Hans is in Jacksonville, Florida. Hans, welcome to Sober in the City.
0: Hi, Debbie. How are you?
1: I'm good. Much better than I was back then. (laughs)
0: I can I can relate. <laughs> tell I me, totally Hans. understand.
1: Tell me what it was like for you. Uh, what kind of bottom did you have? What made you realize that you know what? I need help.
0: Well, I've got a little story that I tell the people in detox when I'm there sharing my experience, strength, and hope. Because my realization where it went from my head to my heart, <laughs> gut level, happened in front of the detox annex. I was coming home from the beach one day in my big, beautiful blue RAM charger with the limousine tent windows, you know, so nobody could see me doing lines on my console, drinking a tall Budweiser, burning a crippy bud going down the highway. And I looked down from I-10 at... The Quitters at Gateway, which is the name of the rehab center where the detox facility unit is here in Jacksonville. The Quitters. And I said to myself in passing, <laughs> well, if I ever wind up there, I'll have to admit I am one, too, as I took another toke on that doobie of crippy butt. <laughs> well, fast forward a few years, I backed my truck into, inside, into a bar full of people in blackout and took off. Now, I still don't remember it, but the video evidence and the eyewitnesses point to me. <laughs> <laughs> now, keep in mind, I'm, I'm, I go to jail, and it's the judge's fault that I backed my truck into there. It's the judge, the chief judge, mind you. You're in trouble when you're in front of the chief judge. And he looks down his glasses at me, and he says, Hans, not Mr. Huntsinger, Hans, I'm going to see to it. If you find out you have a problem you don't know you have. And he sentenced me to some A&A thing, 18 months of getting a white slip of paper signed, and intensive outpatient. So I'm going to intensive outpatient at Gateway. I'm mad at the world. I don't want to be there. Uh, Now, keep in mind, by this point, my disease had progressed to the point where I'd lost my paid-for home in Avondale, my business. I'd run off hostage number one, who is my ex-wife. (laughs) plaintiff. The plaintiff, plaintiff. yeah, She's referred to as plaintiff. Um, and, And I'm riding the bus wearing borrowed clothes couch surfing at my buddy's house, who's the last <laughs> one who wouldn't throw me out anymore. Anyway, I don't want to be there. I'm mad. I'm not one of y'all. I just want my piece of paper signed so I can go on about my business. Now now keep in mind I'm failing the breathalyzer and the urinalysis every day. So I'm in month three of intensive outpatient. <laughs> and um, I'm out front on a cigarette break and a truck just like the one I used to own, drives by on I-10, and that thought came back to me from a few years prior of, oh my God, I'm here. I am one. I'm an <laughs> alcoholic. I'm an addict. And it hit me gut level. It was, it was a worse pain than when my mother passed away. I kid you not, because I knew the jig was up, and I knew I needed help. You know, I'd quit trying to drink and drug before, as we all do at some point. And it, it's not the quitting; it's the staying quit part that was hard. So yeah, I agree. Is you know, I'm 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 I was 39 years old. I had you know I had to look at the facts. You know, not only had I frankly drugged away a three million dollar a year business that I built from the ground up, and a family and a home and everything, I had lost my self respect. I'd lost the respect of my peers in the community. You know, nobody wanted to see me coming down the road anymore. Everyone was tired of me, and mainly I was tired of myself. I was tired of living the way I'd been living, uh, hand to mouth. And, you know, I couldn't couldn't stand the man looking back at me in the mirror. I I had literally started shaving in the shower a couple years prior so that I wouldn't have to look at myself in the mirror. Mm. So now fast forward a few more years. That same judge was at a retirement party for a friend of mine, and I shook Judge Moran's hand and and thanked him for not only saving my life but giving me a life. You know, that's how this program will change your perspective
1: so as you were going through that process and you were you came to that very heavy realization that hit you so hard and i'm sure that was very emotional as you explained it hit you harder than your own mother's death did you feel that there was and we talked about this in our last show did you feel like there was a grieving process for that old lifestyle or were you just like oh my god i cannot believe i even lived like that
0: was a grieving process absolutely
1: hans your phone just cut out where'd you go um hopefully we'll get him back on the line.
0: Yes, I it dropped your call. I'm Yes, and absolutely there was a grieving process. I I would say that I I grieved the loss of my friend for oh several months. But it was slowly replaced by the fellowship and you know the book talks about that that you know we we found that conviviality and everything that we used to get with with our drinking, with our crew, with you know, in the fellowship of of Alcoholics Anonymous and with the people in recovery. So it it wasn't a long, drawn-out year or two long process like it is when you do physically lose someone when they pass, but there was a definite grieving process.
1: How did you do with uh, participating with people from your old life? I mean, obviously we couldn't sit with the drunks in the bar or, you know, or using buddies and, and, but what about the people that were half normal in your life? How did those relationships progress?
0: You know, I I was pretty much, it, it was different. My, um, it, it took a number of years to get the respect of my, my peers back in my community. But as far as the day-to-day relationships, they, I found many of the people were used my addiction and alcoholism there at the end to manipulate me and get what they wanted. And when they couldn't get the same responses with the same <laughs> stimuli they used earlier, um, you know, it, it, it changed. I had a few friends that I'd had since childhood that that stuck with me and stuck by me. But for the most part, a lot of them fell by the wayside.
1: It's really interesting that you bring up that the people were manipulating you uh, to get what they wanted, using your disease against you, using your alcoholism against you and and your character defects probably too, yes?
0: Absolutely. Um, We... (laughs) The people that are closest to us, say with our, our families, you know, they installed a lot of the buttons that they continued to push. And in order to further their agenda, regardless of what it was, they would use my weaknesses, my addictions, my alcoholism against me. You know, I might be broke and then want something, and you know, all of a sudden show up with a bottle and Hey, I need you to go to this for me. By the way, you know, here's a bottle of Crown. Uh, <laughs> and they're you know, doing this know, after you're know. trying to stay sober. Oh yeah, absolutely. After I'm trying to stay sober, you know, a large part of that is that they have to take a look at their own addictions and alcoholism. You know, when 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 they see someone that is perceptibly worse off than they were getting sober, it forces them to look at themselves, and they don't like what they see. So if they can bring you back down to their level or what they perceive as below them. You know, it, it doesn't make them feel as bad about themselves.
1: Oh, that's just the age-old, yeah, yeah, definitely. They have to tear somebody else down so they feel better about themselves. We see that all the time.
0: Absolutely.
1: You know that you need help, and then you have to go and reach out for help. Well, you got the nudge from the judge, as we say. And then, how hard was that transition during that time? How difficult was it for you to live that life, letting go of that old life, going through that grieving process? Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, you know, honestly, those first several months, I didn't want it. You know, as I shared earlier, I was, I was belligerent. I was in denial. I didn't want to be one of you. I, I wasn't one of you in my mind's eye. But the judge told me if I was back in front of him again, he was going to give me five years and a day in Rayford, which is the state prison. He so he had my attention. <laughs> <Yeah. And> for <Rayford's> reluctantly, <laughs> so not good. Reluctantly, reluctantly, I was going to get that little white slip of paper signed, you know, the get well soon from the judge card <laughs> that they give so many people these days. Yes. And um, <laughs> in the process of this, I'm hearing people who drank and drugs like I did that were happy again. There were a couple people in the rooms that I used to party with that were sober and living productive lives again and and happy. And I started with the process of the steps. I asked another man to help me, to show me what he was shown in the book. And you know, it dawned on me one day in one of those meetings that it had been a couple, three days since I'd thought about drinking or drugging. It hadn't crossed my mind. And keep in mind that 20 years prior to that, every single day, I'm thinking about it. I'm scheming how I can do more, get more. Who do I have? You, you know the old drill of you mm-hmm. know what we have to do to feed our addictions and our alcoholism. I sure do. It, it crossed my mind in, in a couple, three days. And that was a miracle in this alcoholic and addict's life.
1: Hans, what do you think? I see a lot of people here, and I live in Palm Beach County, which is the epicenter of of recovery in the world. So LA will fight me (laughs) that it's them, but I think it's Palm Beach County. There's so many people coming here to get sober and of all ages, and I'm particularly seeing over in the Believe uh, Treatment Center that I go to quite often, uh, people under 26, they're coming in under the Obamacare and uh, a lot of people coming under their parents' insurance at this time. I'm seeing a lot of people who don't want to grow up. They don't want to take responsibility for their lives. I see it in girls. Girls are going to men to get rescued, thinking they can't take care of themselves. And men are walking around like boy men. I call it Peter Pan sobriety. Can you share on that? Did you go through that process where you had to learn how to grow up? Do you feel like you were a grown up when you got here?
0: Well... My situation's a little unique. I'm an only child, and my father passed when I was 15, so I was helping make mortgage payments at 14. I've worked full-time since I was 13. You know, I I grew up. I missed my childhood, so I was probably trying to prolong that childhood. But I see a lot of that in the rooms today. I work with the uh, young people here in Florida. You know, the uh, YPG is or picky paw is really prevalent here in the state of Florida. And um, I, I I work with young people. I go to a young people's meeting every week here, and you see it. It part of it is, I think, the entitlement um, generation where. It, they don't want to grow up. They don't think they ever have to grow up, and they've got a government that's acting like a parent figure to them and will provide their needs. Uh, you see, a lot of a lot of these young people, or a lot of people new in sobriety, think that they can have sex to you know cure the ills of, of having to do the hard work of, of recovery. You yeah, know, to, and, to fix the uncomfortability. Know, the French. Mm-hmm. You can't screw yourself sober. You, no, nope. you can't. No, nope. nope. it's, it's just it's... another feeling. It's another addiction to replace one for the other. And...
1: Exactly. I always say if you want to feel good, go get a massage, go get an ice cream. You want to get you want to get better? You want to be better? Do the work. We're going to go to Carlos. Hans, thank you okay. so much. We're going to go to Carlos over in Bethesda, Maryland. Carlos, welcome to Sober in the City.
2: Hey, Debbie, good to talk to you.
1: Thanks, thanks, thanks for being here. Hey, Carlos, how hard was it for you to get into recovery? How did you know that you needed help?
2: Well, actually, I didn't know that I needed help. I never tried to quit. Heck, I still haven't quit. <laughs> I just haven't done a drink or a drug in, I don't know, a few thousand days. Um, let me, In fact, let me back up a half step here. I got taught. Uh, whenever I'm asked uh, to be a, a speaker, topic speaker, or a speaker meeting or anything like that, and this is kind of like being a topic speaker, mm-hmm. uh, to mention a couple, three things first. One is that I've got a sobriety date. It's April 5th, 1991. Uh, another is that I'm actively sponsored and I actively sponsor other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third is that I've got a home group. And the reason I've been taught to always mention those three things when I'm out there speaking, uh, not just when I'm sharing, but when I'm a speaker, is because those three things are three of the absolute strongest tools we have available. If I don't know that I have a day which uh, I stopped uh, being a slave uh, to my ego, and the uh, symptoms of that slavery were the abuse of drink or drugs. And if I, if I don't know that that day where that began for me is important to me, it can be very tough for me to stay sober. If I don't have someone who I let hold me accountable, that's a sponsor who I let actively sponsor me. If I don't be involved in giving it back by sponsoring others, it's gonna be very hard for me to stay sober. And finally, a home group, uh, a place where the meeting is not just to come here and hang with the drunks and socialize, but it's actually a a group of people who are actively involved in sobriety and helping each other stay sober, and not just at the meeting level, but beyond it. Again, it's not that easy stay sober. But with those three things, it really isn't all that tough. I'm a first nighter. I've never had to go back out and, you know, you know test the waters again. And uh, uh, as to how I knew, well, for 21 and a half years, I didn't get sober until I was 38. Uh, I, uh, the only problem I had with drugs or alcohol, alcoholic. I made a good living. Uh, 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 The only problem that I had with alcohol or drugs was if I ran out. Right. (laughs) I I was a functional alcoholic. I made a very good living most of the time dealing drugs. I could support myself. I could support whatever woman I was in a one-on-one with if I was, or support dating up to seven or eight I had on the string if I wasn't in a (laughs) one-on-one. Usually when I was in a one-on-one, the woman had a kid to three kids. I could support them too. Two, was wasn't any problem? I mean, you know, sure, I had bad luck from time to time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I did two prison stretches. But that wasn't because of drugs or alcohol. That was because the cops just didn't like the way I made my living. (laughs) And, And actually, the second stretch was the only thing I was ever charged with where I wasn't guilty. And that led to my recovery. I did my ten months on a year in a federal prison for one count of money laundering uh, and uh, one count of no, one count of bank fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering. I pled guilty to it because I knew I wasn't going to be able to prove my innocence, and in federal court, it's pretty much what you've got to do. In order to not get convicted,
1: honestly, in every court, uh, you have to prove your innocence. That's what I faced time and time. Every drug charge, I, I even had a public defender tell me, "You're gonna have to prove your innocent of these charges." And my poor brother, that was like still pretty normal and naive at the time, looked at me like, "Oh my well, god!" That, like his whole life had been shattered. I said, "I told you this is the way it is. Don't get in the system. Don't get in there."
2: You well, know, that, that that depends on the the town you're in and the uh, level of, ju- uh, of lawyer you can afford. When I was dealing in New Orleans, uh, my lawyer could, uh, 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 could go down and have a couple of drinks with the judge I was going to be in front of and work something out before I even went to court. Mm-hmm. I never did have to go to court there in New Orleans, <laughs> but I tried to have those kind of lawyers on call. Nice. <laughs> uh, I always kept their number in my speed dial once we started having cell phones. We didn't have cell phones really uh uh, I should uh, now that I think about it. It was on my home phone that I had it on speed now. and I got sober before we had cell phones. Yeah, we had just... these things. We we had these things about the size of a loaf of bread. We put under a car dash, and it cost two or three thousand bucks. <laughs> Who newly <laughs> in recovery could afford that? <laughs> but anyway, so to get back to the topic, uh, I uh, I did my ten months on uh, on a year. And the other one was a five year, uh, uh, which he, what, what do you call it? It's been so long since I've been in front of a judge, uh, where if you, uh, where if you don't get in trouble during your, your probation or parole, they'll erase the, the charge. I forget what they call that, but that's what the second count was set up as basically. And so I went out to do my, uh, my parole on uh, well, my probation on that, and uh, after I finished my 10 months on a year on the first one, and you know, I, I was okay for a while, because at, at that time, the feds were still letting you drink when you were on prog- probation or parole, but drugs was a no-no, but booze was okay, and so when I went and crashed on the couch of my lawyer splash weed dealer, um... <laughs> Uh, when I first got out, I just refrained from the drugs, and I drank all I wanted. But then they changed that to where I couldn't drink either. And one night, I was, and I was getting tested three, uh, three times a week, random tests. And they test tougher in the feds than they do in most state places. If your specific gravity isn't right, you've got to wait until it is. So you can't hide it by just drinking water till you're uh, fit to explode. Right? It doesn't work. Uh, if the specific <laughs> gravity ain't right, you got to wait till you've petered away, or you've got to add water till it's right, one of the two. Uh, I was at this partner of mine, business partner of mine's house with uh, him and his girlfriend, and we got into this deep, intimate, friendly conversation. And he's one of us, and he got bored with that and went upstairs to crash. And after a while, we both started getting tired, and she didn't want in the evening to end. So she pulled out this little triangle of paper and unfolded it. There there's this white powder there, and we kept going. And I got a dirty. And so they tested me uh, every day for about five days because I'd been smoking for a while at that point because I found out they had stopped testing me for weed because I'd gone a few months clean from it, and it was an expensive test back then. So I got four or five dirties for the weed in a row because it stays in your body for like about a month after you do it, Uh, it shows up on the test. Well, basically I got given a choice. Go back in front of the judge, up to a 20-year parole violation. Or uh, go into a rehab that uh, the feds uh, regard as one of the toughest ones in the country on a four to six month program. I figured four to six months was better than up to 20 years. I went Mm -hmm. in there. My second day there, I went into a psychosocial interview. And I had to give up one of those deep, dark secrets I was going to take to my grave in order to be honest with them. And that was part of the deal I'd made. I'd be honest with them if they'd let me in. And coming back out, I went out into the courtyard to hang with the guys, and I was telling them my drug-a-log to impress them. Quite an impressive drugologue. Partied with the dead in the airplane and of that kind of stuff. And it hit me how somebody who'd been doing acid for over 20 years, who'd done it every day for over three years straight several times, done weed more, done booze more, could think he didn't have a problem. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I had a first step. All of a sudden, I knew that my life was unmanageable and that I had lost control over my drinking. And I was in despair. And that's how I found out.
1: Oh, my God. By so you went through, through all that, two bits in prison. So you're walking in, you go into this program. You finally share one thing, one deep, dark secret. You get it off your back and you walk out into this yard and you have an epiphany. Uh-huh. Wow. Uh-huh. Wow, Carlos, that's incredible! I'm glad you made it over to this side. Sounds like you've been through a lot.
2: Eh, well, you know, uh, I uh, I made it to Woodstock. I was one of the guys who uh, brought brought a few thousand uh, little tidbits along. What can I say?
1: <laughs> you made Woodstock uh, colorful. I mean, I'm I glad I- you were there. We needed you. <laughs> But now yeah, but now, sure. we, now we need you using your powers for good and not for evil today. Carlos, thank you so much for being with us and Hans. And when we come back, more about how did you know you needed help? How did you get it? How hard was the transition? And how much better is it now? We'll answer that and more. 1-800-SOBER-05. Sober in the City, will be right back. And just because getting sober seems too hard doesn't mean it really will be. We'll be right back. alcoholic? Is someone you know struggling with this disease? Let the Freedom From Addiction Foundation assist you with our acclaimed intervention and recovery coaching services. For a very affordable fee, we can set up and perform on-site interventions, ongoing treatment supervision, and personalized recovery and life coaching services. We are local, we are a nonprofit group, and we can work within your financial parameters by accepting most major credit cards and working with or without your insurance. Call today, 1-877-876-2329. one 877 876 two three two nine. Again, that's one eight seven seven eight seven six two three two nine. Are you a suffering addict or alcoholic? Is someone you know struggling with this disease? Recovery starts with one phone call. Call the Freedom From Addiction Foundation today. 877 876 2329.